everybody. This is Mark Graven. I am the VP of Improvement and Innovation Services from Kinexus. Thanks for joining us today for episode 12 of Ask Us Anything. I am joined by Greg Jacobson, if you want to introduce yourself. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Kinexus, and I'm really looking forward to the five, seven questions that we're going to knock out today. Yeah, 30 minutes goes quickly. Um, we've got a lot of questions. We We'll try to get through. Um, we always try to start with something kind of in the realm of uh, anything, when we say ask us anything. Um, Greg and I are both big Spurs fans, San Antonio Spurs basketball. Um, we like to talk about lessons learned from sports. Greg, do you have any kind of insights and thoughts about the Spurs and what you learned from watching them? Yeah. <clears throat> so as we were kind of thinking through well, what was going to be the question that that we add to this to, to give some color. I was thinking about, you know, why do I love the Spurs and why has it become more meaningful to me as I'm going through my continuous improvement journey? And, and the Spurs are just a great example of applying a discipline and uh, creating a system and then believing in that system and, and recognizing that, that if they follow a process, that the results will be a side effect, so to speak, of that process. Um, you don't just randomly have the most successful professional franchise in all of sports history ever be by some kind of random event. It, it's, it's kind of this discipline. You don't get to the playoffs 19 seasons in a row because of, of random events, right? So it's this, this kind of disciplined realization of uh, that if you follow and stick with a process that the results will come. An interesting statistic I just read is right now on this first team there are only three people that are in the current roster that were top 30 draft picks. Right. Every single other one is a um, lower than a top 30 and it's just a, it just it just shows that kind of working through a system and working through a process the sum becomes greater than the parts. And yeah, it's I've seen the same thing. First. I've seen the same thing with the Spurs. I grew up uh, in Detroit. I'm still a Detroit Red Wings fan. This year is the first year they had made the playoffs 25 consecutive seasons. Uh, wow. I believe it was three Stanley Cup championships in that time, as opposed to five championships for the Spurs. Um, the Red Wings have had a fairly similar playbook. Um, uh, the last couple years there's been some noticeable decline. Last year they barely made the playoffs. This year the writing was on the wall that it wasn't going to happen. But they've gone through multiple coaches, lots and lots of players, but there, there's been I think you know, kind of a system and they haven't been able to rely on high draft picks because they've always had good teams. So it's a similar dynamic. They have to draft smart, they have to develop players in the minor leagues, they have to have uh, a system, and I think there's a, a good lesson there. Great. One other thing, um, the other night or about a week ago, I was watching, uh, I don't know if you saw the Spurs play the Warriors, Greg? Sure. The Spurs jumped out to a 15 to nothing lead. They were ahead 23 to 3. The fans were going crazy, the players seemed to be enjoying it, and there was Coach Popovich. It was just scowling. He was, you know, he, and I said to my wife, I said, well, I, you know, I said, look at Pop. I paused it. And I'm like, why can't he enjoy this? But I think he's just always, I think for one, he never gets too high or too low. Right. There's kind of a calming, mellowing effect either way. And I'm sure there was something 
that he saw when you speak of continuous improvement and striving for, for perfection, there was something he saw about the way they were playing that made him unhappy. And I think that that relentless drive to continue to identify something, um, I, don't, I, I don't think he saw the writing on the wall. I mean, the Spurs ended up losing that game, unfortunately. But uh, I, I think he sets the tone uh, in some interesting ways. So it's, it's this constant focus on the process and not the outcome. That, yeah. that makes him a, a great coach and, and lead a, a great organization. And, and that, that's, that's what he, he was focusing on. He, he wasn't focusing on what the score was at that moment. So, yeah. um, well, and when we, when we think back to workplaces, a lot of organizations only react and troubleshoot when they get a bad result instead of looking, say, well, if we've got a bad process and we happen to still get good results, maybe that's, that's luck and that luck is going to catch up to us. I saw last week uh, the vice president of quality from one of the um, Dallas hospitals talking about the need to focus on, on the process and, and not just react to, to results. And you do that through checklists. We use a checklist to prepare for these webinars. Um, it, there, there's that, that relentless focus on the process and preventing problems instead of just reacting more quickly. I, I really appreciated his comments. Continuous improvement is not sexy. It's just uh, the the disciplined way to end up with a really high functioning organization. Whether that organization is, you know, a hospital, a summer camp, a software company, or even your family and you as an individual, um, a disciplined approach will have really satisfying results in the end. So. Yeah. Well, so we've got a question here. When we talk about uh, these ideas applying anywhere around the world, we've got a question here uh, from Malaysia, from Benny, who asked about culture change. Um, the working culture here in Malaysia, he's an industrial engineer, is very different than the one in Japan. The current situation in my factory is that the operators here do not want to engage in improvement programs because they feel it does not benefit them. How do I change that culture? How can I convince workers that continuous improvement is a win-win for them? I understand that in Japan, workers do continuous improvement because they see it as an achievement and no rewards or prizes are needed to motivate them. So my, my first comment to this, um, I've only been to Japan a couple of times. And when I visited Toyota, our tour guide, um, she was uh, a woman who worked in the public affairs department. She was, I think, essentially a full-time tour guide and did other public relations work. During the tour, we asked her, have you gotten to implement a Kaizen? She was talking about Kaizen. And yep. she said, well, yeah, I, I have. And, and she showed us where, as we went through the tour, there are various spots where she was supposed to stop and talk. And in each of those places, there was a hook for her to put her, her bag. It was I don't know if it was a purse or a briefcase. It was kind of in that in-between. And she said that those hooks were her Kaizen idea, that she didn't like setting her bag on the ground, even though the plant was fairly clean. It was her idea for the hooks. And she said she talked to her supervisor. She mentioned the idea. The supervisor said, yes, maintenance installed the hooks. She, that was purely out of um, self-motivation. She didn't want her bag to get dirty. And so I think there, there's an important lesson there, whether it's Malaysia or what I've seen with hospitals in, in Thailand or um, organizations in the U.S., 
the way you show employees that Kaizen is win-win is you ask them to come up with ideas that would be a win for them. That right. ends up being a win for the organization. You just you seek out those opportunities, right? What do you, what do you say? Yeah. I like to phrase it as what frustrates you at your workplace? That's just an easy place to start. What we see almost invariably when an organization is, is truly doing that kind of bottom-up, they recognize that 80% of their improvement potential is sitting in the front lines. How do we unlock that? Right. What we see almost invariably is that if you if you look at the categorization of the improvements that are implemented in that first year, staff satisfaction takes an overwhelming majority of the percentage. We often see over 50% of all improvements in that first wave. Then if you keep tracking out over time, you start seeing things like safety, quality, finance, following, because you, they kind of got rid of all the things that were bothering them, and then they could see past their own one to two feet and, and, and really delve into the process. So it's a great way to get buy-in, and it's a great way to, I mean, from, there's a staff morale issue, there is um, probably a, an added safety benefit of the hook, right? I mean, I'm, Someone may have tripped on the bag. Who knows? Right. So what's what's so interesting is the the intended impact sometimes is not the actual impact of an improvement. Right. Um, sometimes you just you know the the classic example we talk about with this Mark was the the nurse that said, hey, wouldn't it be great if we just called in the patient's prescription to the pharmacy, our local pharmacy right down the hall, and so when they walk out, the the prescription's ready. Well, the intent the the unintended benefit of that was that it increased the pharmacy's output by over $200,000 a month because right. some of these were some really expensive prescriptions. But it was actually done for patient satisfaction, you know? Right, right. Um, so uh, to me, that's the, the, the best place to start is just what bothers you and let's fix that. And I, I don't know if it's a, a cultural thing because – we also know plenty of places in Japan that aren't doing Kaizen well at all. Yeah. So it's not just, oh, well, you just need to be Japanese and, and this will just right. magically happen. Yeah, and I, and I think there's powerful lessons about tapping into intrinsic motivation, whether you know, it's Masaki Amai and, and the book you and I both read and been inspired by, his book Kaizen, talks about you, know, you, you just want people participating in the improvement process. Um, more you know, current, oh, Masaki Amai is still around, but... Uh, Paul Akers, in his book, Two Second Lean, he asked people, come up with an, uh, a small improvement that will save two seconds in doing something. Um, a little bit of time savings can have that dual benefit of reducing frustration, making your work easier, and having benefit in terms of capacity and, and uh, output for the organization, which can have financial benefits. So um, I, I think you know we go looking for win-win, and even if we err on the side of being only a win for the employee, like you said, Greg, a lot of times really that ends up being win-win for the organization. They they start participating, and then over time you discover they are coming up with ideas that very directly save money, which I think is different than organizations that focus too much on um, asking people to do cost cutting. That doesn't engage people the way finding something that uh, makes your work easier engages people. That's great. I, I think it's going to tie into the next question as well. Um, do you want to start with that one? Yeah, well, I was going to make one other point when it comes to incentives or rewards. Um, I mean, I think there's, there's two 
mental models that organizations and leaders often have before they start with Kaizen. One is, well, we've got to make it mandatory. We've got to require participation. I said, well, no, if you invite people to work on problems that matter to them, you're tapping into that intrinsic motivation. The second assumption is, well, we have to give an incentive. And I've, just, I've seen if leaders are engaging people in this Kaizen style, people will participate because they want to, because it's interesting, because it's in their self-benefit. And sometimes the idea of doing rewards and incentives just becomes uh, a bureaucracy that can be a distraction or, or gets in the way. And, and if you want to get into the nitty-gritty of the social science behind this, uh, Daniel Pink's book, Drive, it, it, it kind of breaks down the, the science behind this. I think you know, we're, we're talking to one of our customers and they had a, a quota for a number of improvements per employee per year. And they actually gave us some feedback and we, we are going to be releasing, I think in the next version, a, a feature that, that they came up with, um, one I've been wanting to do for a long time, but, you know, I'm fanatical about waiting for a customer to kind of sponsor it um, before it, it finds its way in. And we called it a target. Um, line and they they subsequently have kind of redirected their their thought process here and said oh well, we're not interested in quotas anymore because of the exact reason you mentioned it creates right. you know, really bad behavior I don't think that that means that you you can't have a target or a goal right it's it's a matter of you know we would like to see one or two improvements or five improvements per person per year that's not saying we're going to make it man like we're not going to get to that by making it mandatory that people right. do that. We're going to we can still set that target or that goal and and not do quotas. And, and right. certainly, I think knowing where you want to end up um, is, is really important to the success of the journey that you're going on. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think there's a difference between an aspirational goal and a quota. If you don't reach an aspirational goal. You learn from it, you adapt, you move on. When you've got a quota and people fear getting in trouble for not hitting the quota, that's where things get really dysfunctional. Okay, but moving on, we've, uh, the next couple of questions are also about gaining buy-in. Uh, we've, we've talked about getting buy-in from frontline employees. Next question is from Audra. What is the best approach to leaders who still don't embrace CI, especially with allowing those who do the work to drive the improvement opportunities. Greg, do you want to address that first? Yeah, I mean, we could probably spend an hour on, on this and um, alone, and I think we probably have dedicated webinars to this. But in, in the reason why I thought the first question related to the second question is because whenever, I mean, to me, what we're ultimately talking about is conflict resolution, right? And, and conflict resolution, one of the, the principles of it is finding a common ground, right? And so we talked about in the prior question, well, how do you engage the front line? And we said, well, just find a, a common ground of what frustrates you and let's go fix that. I think right. the same thing applies to senior leaders, right? Find a common ground. What, what are their goals? What, what are they trying to achieve this year, this month, this, you know, over the next five years? And don't talk about continuous improvement, right? Just talk about those goals and then figuring out, well, how can we, we move the needle to, 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 to start accomplishing those goals. And what you'll end up realizing is that they'll be doing continuous improvement before they even realize it. And you don't even have to talk about, you know, Hoshin or strategy deployment or control charts or, you know, A3s and, 
And it's, it's kind of getting the, that kind of core of improvement science as being part of just what we do versus, oh, we're going to do this program called Lean, and we know that doesn't work, right? It's, it's more of a lifestyle, and it's a practice versus a, um, right. something we're going to start on Monday. Yeah, yeah, and, and we can combine, you know, the next question was from Martin, who asked, how do we get senior management's buy-in? on CI. I think you've touched on a lot of it, Greg. You know, um, doing continuous improvement or lean or Kaizen or whatever we call it should be a means to an end. We don't want to do lean because it's somehow the right thing to do or because it's trendy. We should be, over time, driving sustainable long-term results for the organization. And, and that's not just cost and finance, but as, as you were saying earlier, it's safety, quality, customer satisfaction, uh, employee, satisfaction. So there's that combination of uh, bottom-up employee ideas. What bugs you? What do you see? What can you fix? And then there's also top-down guidance. Here are the directions and the strategies of the organization. Here are the goals that we need to accomplish this year. But then leaders um, don't dictate all of the how. They might talk about what and why and expect more of the what and how at a detailed level to come from uh, more of the bottom up. So we're going to set goals. We see this in what you call strategy deployment or Hoshin, Conry. Executives and leaders still set direction, but then we ask employees and managers at different levels to figure out how are we going to accomplish goals in their local department and organizationally. But one other thing I would add, I, mean, I think if leaders don't embrace this approach to continuous improvement, I, I hear all the time people ask, how do we convince people that this will work? And so, well, let's, let's try. Let's do a small test of change. Let's do a pilot. Let's demonstrate that A, people will participate. B, um, they'll keep participating. C, that it's going to be driving um, all sorts of benefits in, in that small part of the organization. Prove that out and then expand. And I think it's, the word align comes to mind. Whenever I think of kind of Hoshin strategy, I just, I think of the word align just in, in my head uh, on, on thinking through this. Um, I think of, hey, you, it's great to have one problem solver, but what about a team of problem solvers or an army of problem solvers? And, and then I think one of the best ways to continue to make sure that your leaders, once they do the experiment, once they're like, okay, cool, we'll do this experiment, I'm gonna kind of authorize energy, be done you know, towards this type of uh, behavior, is to make sure they have visibility into the impact. And we talk a lot about that. I think it's something that, that, that software really brings to the table to be able to do that. But, but whether you're doing it through Kinexus or Excel spreadsheets or, or just on, on paper, you really need, it's just like you said, if, if there's a different way to improve, to get to the end, by all means, do it. You know, I mean, yeah. we just happen to believe that we haven't found a better system out there to get the results that, that we're all looking for. And so making sure people understand what the results are is going to be critical to, to understanding. It's kind of like, yeah. if you don't know what the score of the game is, then it becomes really hard to know if you're playing the game right, if that makes sense. You know? so. Okay, well, uh, we've got another question that came in from April, who asked... From April of the month or April the person? 
April the first. It's an April question in April. Um, Greg, you're being an April fool. <laughs> uh, I just taught my six-year-old daughter about April Fool jokes. We had a blast on April Fool's Day. Anyway, well, there, anyway, before we get into the question, there was a nice April Fool's post on the uh, the Kinexus blog that uh, that Maggie Millar wrote. I would encourage people to go and look at it. The uh, the Kinexus Kiss system. Yeah, we worked on that for months. I hope everyone really gets a lot of value from it. <laughs> how, how, how to apply continuous improvement to your family and your life at home, right? Exactly. Um, but April's question, so a lot of times when, when, when Greg and I talk about Kaizen, our default almost um, always means small, staff-driven continuous improvement ideas. Um, the, the phrase Kaizen event, you know, to me that's a form of Kaizen. So April's question was, when planning a Kaizen event, in healthcare people often call these rapid improvement events, what is your process? After clearly defining the problem in business case, how do you determine the scope and the goals? So um, I'll throw out a couple ideas. Um, one, for a real kind of detailed deep dive, I, I do recommend a book called The Kaizen Event Planner by um, Karen Martin and Mike Osterling. Um, if you go to Karen Martin's website, you can just do a Google search for um, Karen Martin Kaizen Event Planner. You'll, you'll find her website, Karen Martin Associates. She's got a lot of free webinars, a lot of really detailed information, and I, I recommend the book. But, you know, the Kaizen event is usually three to five days. It can be shorter, but let's call it a week-long Kaizen event. The work to plan the event is usually greater than the week itself, where people might start eight weeks in advance defining the problem, doing an initial Kaizen event charter, forming a team, collecting data, and I think the question around determining scope and goals is an iterative discussion. You've got your starting point, and then you talk to your leaders, and you get their input, and you refine the scope. Someone might give guidance to say, no, nah, that seems too big, narrow that down a little bit. Um, you're forming the team, you're doing some initial pre-work before the event, and you may learn from that and change some of your scope accordingly. So I, mean, I think of it as an iterative process as you're getting ready for the event, and I think there's a real strong correlation between the amount of planning and the quality of planning and the expected outcome of the event. So it, it's by no means a situation where you plan and have the week scripted and you know exactly what's going to happen. That wouldn't be a good event. But you've certainly done the work to make sure you've got what seems like a reasonable scope, that you've got who you think are the right people involved, and that you've got the ability to actually go pilot some changes instead of spending a week coming up with um, a to-do list. So, I mean, that, that's, I think that's my general question um, to April, is, or my, my response to April's question is to um, spend a good amount of time on, on that upfront. And don't expect to have the perfect idea right away. Do some uh, iteration. Yeah, and I think the only thing I can really add to that is, is from a Kinex standpoint, where does where does the platform, where does the software come into that? And and then I'll make one caveat at the end about about my thoughts on events in general. But um, that that whole planning process of of the iterations on figuring out what is the scope. Perhaps there's going to be some documents that need to be tracked along. Perhaps that the charter is evolving over that you know four to eight week process. All that can 
can occur very well and almost all of our customers are, are if they're doing events then they're using um, Kinexus to help manage that event. What's interesting is is that you know a lot of the magic of the event happens because people are in a room and there might be some butcher paper or they go out in the Gemba and actually roll up their sleeves and figure out what the process is. You know, documenting what happens there is probably the only way the Kinex platform is going to be used during the event because that magic really happens when people are, are talking and, and conversing and, and kind of iterating. And then um, what, we, what we constantly heard, and it was actually the initial problem that, that we, we aimed to solve by, in, by, by building the you know, Kaizen event management features in Kinexus was that, that, that follow-up process where people said, oh, you know, we, we got 30 improvements out of the event. We did seven of them during the event, but on that 30-day check-in and that 60 and then 90-day check-in, nothing was really happening because the team didn't have an asynchronous way to all stay together to make sure those are happening. And so what we what we see is people that manage Kaizen events in Kinexus are able to make sure all those um, improvements end up getting completed, whether they create a change or not. Is just a determination of, of what the actual problem we're looking to solve is, but yeah. and that's kind of where Kinexus fits in. And then um, my my one other comment, and, and I looked at events initially um, way before I knew Mark when I was just learning about about, about Kaizen, and my initial take on them was, wow, that nothing continuous about events. Events sound like episodic improvement, and which we know doesn't create a culture of continuous improvement. And once I started talking with Mark and he, he, he started explaining to me that you know, the, the popularity of events have, has really been a manifestation of kind of the consultant culture because it's very easy for a consultant to come on site for a week and, and really help um, kind of spur and lead that process on. Um, that's not to devalue the, the value of events. Events certainly have their place. They're a very effective top-down mechanism, but we We've seen over and over and over, and we actually have some great charts and, and data to show this in Kinexus, where um, the, the kind of episodic nature of the event and it then not leading to a culture of continuous improvement. So I don't think you should go into thinking, oh, we are going to develop a culture of continuous improvement by doing an event each month. That, that just will not happen. You'll certainly solve a lot of problems each month but you won't kind of create that, that culture, if you will. Yeah, and my understanding of the history of the Kaizen event, or what was often called the Kaizen Blitz in the United yes. States in the 1980s, you had Shingejitsu consulting firm from Japan flying people back and forth. Uh, it made sense to come and spend a week and then go fly home. But my understanding is that the intent of these Kaizen Blitzes was to demonstrate that improvement was possible, to spur on and inspire ongoing continuous improvement. Um, that would be, I think, the ideal situation. If you do some events, and you're gonna need events, I think, to solve relatively large systemic problems, but you should also be doing ongoing continuous improvement. We see similar um, things if we think about Mary Greeley Medical Center, one of our co uh, great customers. They were doing events. We helped them with something called uh, a workout, which is you know a 90-day improvement blitz of everybody uh, in every department coming up with an improvement. But Mary Greeley did that as a way to set the foundation for ongoing Kaizen, daily continuous improvement, which we also helped them with a um, year and a half ago, I think it was, and two and a half years ago. 
and uh, yeah, and helped them and, and kicked that off in a couple of departments, proved it out. Ron Smith and their team there, we've got a, a webinar in our library um, on the Mary Greeley story. There's stuff on the website about their workout success. This all ties together, big improvement, small improvement, events, continuous improvement, episodic improvement. Um, it can all coexist, and I think the common theme, last point I'll make, is that it's all PDCA or PDSA, Plan, Do, Check, Act. It's all um, in that same style. It's interesting, and this is really about, about trivia, because I don't think we're going to be able to probably get to our, our next questions based on time, but right. when I was doing all of my research for the, the paper that I published in Academic Emergency Medicine, um, where maybe people don't realize, but I'm an emergency medicine doctor that that realized there was all this improvement science that could be applied to the emergency department and uh, published a, a, a paper on it. But when I was doing it, you know, Berwick is often credited as the first person to talk about Kaizen. And, and, I'm, I'm sorry? Don Berwick. Don Berwick, I don't Don know. Berwick. Yeah. Um, is uh, being credited to introduce Kaizen to to healthcare, but I actually found a number of references in the literature going back to 82, 83, if my memory serves me correctly, about describing this blitz process. And interestingly enough, it was being done in, in the pharmacy departments. And the pharmacy departments are some of our, in at least our healthcare customers, some of our kind of most progressive departments that are applying these, these principles. And so I, I just think it's an interesting, I had totally forgotten about the Blitz yeah. being kind of a predecessor to the, I mean, to me, I don't like it because it reminds me of Blitzkrieg, but, um, but I, I like the event as, a, a, as semantically better, but um, yeah. as, as really being really the first ways uh, Kaizen and, and, and even this was even before the term lean was uh, coined was uh, finding its way into healthcare. So yeah, interesting, interesting piece of trivia. Yeah, so I, I think we're going to have to wrap up today. I mean, 30 minutes goes very quickly. Um, we got through uh, four questions. We want to thank everybody who asked those questions. Um, Greg and I, I, I think we'll try to do another Ask Us Anything, um, if not in May, sometime uh, in June. We'll announce that through the website. Go to kinexus.com slash webinars. Well, those of you watching live know... Um that my internet cut out right as we were wrapping up here. So just want to let you know about the next webinar. It's going to be presentation format on uh, April 25th. Kevin Meyer, one of the co-founders and partners at Gemba Academy, is going to be presenting on what he calls personal leadership at the nexus of lean and zen. I think it's going to be a really interesting, thought-provoking topic. You can go to www.kinexus.com slash webinars to register and you'll also be notified about our upcoming Ask Us Anything. So on behalf of Greg Jacobson and the entire team at Kinexus, we want to thank you for joining us for Ask Us Anything and we'll see you next time.